Hey there, this is the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO. Here on the Padverb Podcast, I'd like to talk to people who are working at the crossroads of cognitive science, technology, culture, and economics. And even though it's not explicitly in our mission statement, that extends to fashion as well. In the many hundreds of interviews that I've done in my time as a podcaster, I have never interviewed somebody about the fashion industry. And that ends with this episode of the Padverb Podcast. The guest on this episode is Stefania Barbaglio, otherwise known as Steffi B. Reading from her website, steffib.io, known for her entrepreneurial spirit and boundless creativity, as well as her keen eye for opportunities, Stefania is an international businesswoman, Italian by origin and British by adoption. She founded the award-winning public relations industrial relations agency Cassiopeia Services after 10 years of working in public relations and journalism. Stefania is a recognized disruptor, having helped a range of blockchain application-focused companies with their groundbreaking crypto projects. A keynote speaker on new technology disruption, alternative investment, sustainable fashion, social empowerment, and marketing strategies, she also presents her own TV show, Financial Fox, and hosts regular symposia and events. Steffi B. believes that blockchain can positively disrupt the fashion industry by offering protection to brands and promoting transparency across the product supply chain. And when I asked her how I should address her, she said that I should just call her Steffi. So here is my conversation with Steffi. You are listening to the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO. I'm joined by Steffi from London. Steffi, good to talk to you. Hi, it's great to be on the show. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How about you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. For me, it's Saturday morning. For you, mid-afternoon. Are you in London? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in London. Alrighty. So this will be an interesting exploration for me, I think. I know very, very little about the world of fashion, and uh, that's your passion. But you have joined your, your passion for fashion with a passion for crypto. Uh, not necessarily cryptocurrency, but uh, NFTs in fashion. And rather than have me describe it, let me invite you to say a little bit about what you were doing before you got into crypto and then how you merged your existing passions with this new interest. Yeah, that's actually a great point. And I'm so pleased that you brought it up like that because uh, I was a model when I was very young, from 15 until around 19. And you know, the, the fashion world can be quite harsh and it's not easy to navigate, let's say. I left it when, uh, still when I was young because of family pressure. You know, you have to have a proper degree, you need to study and you don't have time for all these things. They're going to basically give you a lot of headaches and they are not healthy. So I left it because I was forced to, but fashion was my passion. It has always been. So, uh, you know, then you have, you enter a different path, uh, you know, you start working. Actually, I moved uh, to the UK when I was uh, 23 for a master's degree. And, uh, you know, my career was mainly in finance and nothing to do really with fashion. If it was not just, uh, you know, the, my passion and the way I used to express myself as well. So what's happening is, how do I got here? In uh, 2017, uh, this is when I got into crypto through my work. So I was working for my company, offering PR and investigation services to public listed um, businesses. And one of them changed the name to blockchain. And obviously, you know, I had to kind of get up to speed with all the crypto stuff. 
And uh, that was uh, like a holy moment for me because uh, I really saw the opportunity the blockchain was bringing to different industry and also to fashion. So I started to kind of like put together some thought about how tokens could be considered or could uh, perhaps give the opportunity to business uh, to disrupt the models and other different kinds of utilities. I wasn't into NFT yet then, but, you know, there was a good exploration time. And in 2020, obviously, the NFT market boomed. And this is when I started to, you know, do more in the space just because everybody woke up as well. And uh, yeah, for the first time in my life, I have to say, you know, I was able to join my passion for fashion and my work. And uh, it's been amazing since then. You're also a podcaster and a TV show host, and you talk to a lot of people in the world of finance and crypto. What's that like, uh, connecting with people on these topics? It's amazing. And I have to say that my, my YouTube channel started in 2018, and again, was a part of the work that I do for publicly listed companies. So I was interviewing CEOs, right? And in 2018, I started to interview more uh, leaders in the crypto space. And, uh, you know, now I basically focus on that, even though I still do some interview on, uh, you know, like gold and investment, because, you know, that's a big part of my job. But I think interviewing people is great. Interviewing tough leaders in the crypto space is brilliant because it's an opportunity for you to kind of like learn things. At the same time, challenge your thinking with, uh, you know, what other, you know, very, very important people and and leaders think about those topics, think about the crypto industry, think about Web3, think about disrupting uh, our economy, our society. So I love it. You are associated with Input Output Global. That's uh, one of Charles Hoskinson's companies, one of the companies that helped build the Cardano blockchain. What do you do for them? Well, that uh, is all related, all started with fashion. (laughs) So I interviewed Charles uh, quite a while ago, and um, we started to talk about fashion and how, you know, blockchain can actually help the industry. And then uh, and then is how basically how it happened. And, uh, and then I started to work with IO almost a year ago. And uh, the main focus is really helping the company to basically get the blockchain and technology solution into more businesses, into more the private sectors. And, uh, you know, IO is not only the company that built and maintained the Cardano blockchain, but it's got some really interesting technology that can be very valuable for businesses in the sense like proving authentication, verify, you know, supply chain traceability, verified credential and digital identities. They are doing an amazing work, for example, in Africa, helping the governments with, you know, education for students, giving digital identity to these young people, and those are very important for mobility of the students as well. You know, many things that here we give for granted, they don't have them there. So first of all, I love the mission they have. They are a proper company. And, you know, in the crypto space, one of the things is 
many businesses out there, many companies, they claim to do a lot, they claim to a product, they don't. Is company, they, you know, they start uh, a few years ago and then they go bust or they disappear. IO is a massive company. There are lots of people all over the world working with the same goal, which is how we are going to disrupt the world for the better, how we are empowering people. And that was, you know, is something that really resonates with my principles. So with them, my focus is actually helping them to onboard more brands, more businesses. They need their technology, not just the Cardano blockchain, but more other technology they are developing, like Atalascan, Atalatrace, Atalapay, Atalaprism. And not many people know about those technologies they are developing. I don't. But exactly. But it's not just you, it's many <laughs> others, you know, the work they are doing. So now I'm focusing quite a lot in, on digital identities, which I think identities is going to be the next big things. And brands are going to understand that very soon. But it's not just about brand, it's about governments. You know, see all the work the European Union is trying to do, trying to give a digital identity to their citizens. And then there is also the financial sector with, you know, the regulation, KYC. Everybody will need to have a digital identity and verify credentials in order to participate in the economy. And this is what we are working at IHK. And yeah, it's great. Amazing people. And yeah, very, very happy. Is there a recorded interview available online with you talking to Charles Hoskinson? Yeah, there is. There is. If you, if you go on my channel, you will find one. I'm trying to set up uh, another one soon because uh, I think it's been a while that we haven't talked on a podcast. And yeah, there will be one coming up very soon as well. Well, on the Padverb website, there is uh, a function where you can trace your connection. If you're a podcaster, you can trace your connection to any other figure who's appeared on a podcast. Me talking to you puts me one step from Charles Hoskinson, which is it's pleasing to me. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's very cool. He's amazing. And uh, I, I met him the first time at Consensus this year uh, in person. And, uh, you know, I have to say he's very charismatic. The thing is, uh, people gain the kind of weight and charisma as they get older. And Charles is very young. Yeah. <laughs> and there is, you can't find that in many people. You know, there are people in their 60s and 70s or even 50s that you said, right, those people know a lot. They've got lots of knowledge because they gain it over years. With Charles, these things doesn't work. I mean, he's, he's young in his 30s and he, he has got so much knowledge already that, I mean, it's quite scary. Speaking of scary, I've got a comment here I want to share with you. <laughs> Somebody wrote, brands and government tying together would make Justice Powell so happy. I think that Jake here is raising concerns about government overreach and intrusion into our lives. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that topic? Yeah, that's interesting because government is a centralized, obviously centralized authorities and they want to, you know, they want to know everything about us. And that is basically the scary thing of Web2 and the scary thing of government that what it is. Now with, with crypto and the decentralized movement, we are pushing that boundaries. And it's funny because I think that you see that with governments, you see that with financial institutions, they don't want to give away their control. But at the same time, they don't understand 
this technology enough and they feel threatened. So, and the same is with brand, you know, brand, they don't want to give that power. They don't want to give away, you know, all the data they collect from people and all. So there is kind of similarity, you know, if you are comparing brands and governments and the people like Powell or many other people, they, you know, they are at the top, they don't want to give away the control. However, what I think is, is that society is changing and uh, yeah, maybe we are just at the beginning, but the decentralized movement is going to push, is going to push, is going to push. Technology is going to enable people to move uh, from one world to another world in a more like a frictionless way where we are going to own our data more and more. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's interesting the work that people are doing with DAOs. I'm not saying that DAOs are going to replace the current society and the current, uh, you know, governance, but uh, they are definitely posing challenges. And if we are going to be able to develop the space in a way that is uh, sustainable and actually can empower people lowering the risks associated with that and helping us to make better decisions, so I think that could become the next model of society, perhaps. I mean, I would love to see that. But, you know, there are, then there is an argument you would say that some people need somebody to kind of look after them. But I'm sure we will find ways for the society and the community maybe to take over that kind of task. But yeah, it's, it's interesting, that kind of tension between you know, decentralization and centralization. And definitely we are getting somewhere new. That's for sure. Crypto does allow for what's known as decentralized identification, you know, via the blockchain. So the governments are not involved. But that said, I know that Charles is working directly with governments, particularly in Africa, you know, to roll out new applications for blockchain. Exactly. And also the team is now in Mongolia as well. Mm -hmm. So... There's a very famous picture of Charles in his Mongolian gear with a falcon on his exactly, wrist. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I think Mongolia is definitely a country that's got lots of opportunity, as many others, but they have a good relationship with IHK. You know, and I'm hoping to see something very interesting coming out from there. I mean, Africa, as you probably, you know, as you know, and everybody knows, uh, is already a country where uh, IHK is making great contribution, working with the government in the education sector specifically, but it's not just education that can be disruptive. There is finance, right? There is real estate. I think that digital identities is really the thing that can change things quite substantially. I mean, you see, the thing in crypto is all about money, right? When um, we are not a wallet. We are not a wallet address. We are much more than that. That's why digital identity and verified credentials, they really open up this crypto world that has been all about money for now. But it's not just that. There is much more that we can add to our society and to the people if we focus on different kinds of values. Well, I'm happy to talk about crypto, but I'd like to circle back to fashion for a moment because I was reading some things on your website that I really had trouble wrapping my head around. You said in one of your articles that the fashion industry uses more energy than global aviation and shipping combined, and I just couldn't really square that circle. Yeah, that's, uh, that's crazy. That's crazy. How could that be? 
Well, it's very simple. It's because, you know, in order to produce garments, there is a lot of resources that need to be consumed. There is transportation. And then you have to think about um, the fast fashion, which uh, has been, I think, has been, uh, you know, what was driving the fashion industry for over the last decades. You know, you see those brands like Zara, H&M, and many others. They are basically producing Primark, producing in amounts. They are unbelievable because it's not, I mean, fashion used to be, I buy two times a year some really good quality garments and accessories and then I wear them and that's it and then I'm gonna replace them with new things that was the model that was supposed to be but uh, what's happened over the last uh, decades is that it's not you know you, you have loads of stuff because uh, you don't only shop twice a year and our collection are every three months every three months there is something new and so your wardrobe is not anymore it's, it's just crazy how much people are shopping. The quality is horrible. So if you go to Primark, you buy something, then you wear it a few times, and then you have to throw it away. They don't last a wash, and that's crazy. So there has been an overproduction of clothing that even the fashion brand, if you see Burberry is a good example. When they don't sell their collection, they used to burn it. So you see all the energy they were used to produce something, then you have to use them to destroy. So there has been fast fashion overproduction, and then the fashion industry by itself in producing garment is a very energy expensive industry. So yeah, that's I think has been escalated, and that's why now we are seeing the second end market picking up because uh, people don't want to throw away their clothes anymore, which goes in landfill and then they have to be burned. They want to resell them. So it's all about circular economy. So we are trying to find solution to this problem. But then, you know, when you think about NFTs, most of the NFTs, they were on the Ethereum blockchain, which is proof of work, which consume a lot of energy, as everybody knows. So then you are going to face another problem is not only you have got all the problem in the physical world, you're going to have the same problem in the virtual world because all the energy consumption associated with Ethereum. So what I would like to see is actually a solution to that as well. So I'm a big fan of uh, buying secondhand myself. Okay. Yeah, so pre-loved, you know, you you can buy fantastic brand like, you know, Chanel, Hermes, Dolce Gabbana, any, any, any big brand you can buy secondhand. Obviously, you know, then it's up to you hunting the one with the good quality and knowing the right places to go. But uh, that is something that in the physical world, uh, I think it can be a good solution. And definitely the secondhand market is going to grow a lot. In the virtual world, what I want to see is actually, I'm, you know, more blockchain. They are going to deploy NFT, fashion NFT, and they are not associated with Ethereum. So I would like to see big brands like, you know, Prada, Dolce Gabbana, just moving away from Ethereum, just because it's not sustainable, to be honest. And, and it's crazy because all these big brands, they talk about sustainability and then they, you know, practice, they do the opposite. So it's quite, it's quite contradicting. So you encourage brands not to just automatically assume that NFTs involve the Ethereum blockchain. Is that because it's, uh, it's still a proof of work blockchain and more energy intensive? 
Exactly. Is I'm not that, you know, you need to go with one blockchain only. You know, I think the, the future is going to be probably multi-chain. But uh, Brands has been focusing on Ethereum and Polygon. But there are other network out there like Cardano has got a massive community is a proof of stake is one of the most sustainable proof of stake and brand should look at Cardano NFT ecosystem which is growing amazingly and also they offer the NFTs because they are uh, different than the NFT on Ethereum they can offer different they've got different features so they've got actually more opportunities if uh, brands decide to go on Cardano you know, and other chain as well. This brand, they have to explore different communities and uh, they have to think about with a sustainable mindset. And I think Ethereum right now on proof of work is not sustainable. Now, what is going to happen with proof of stake? I don't know. It's a big question mark because this merge has been postponed and postponed and there are always challenges. And if you think about, you need to move all the liquidity that now is on Ethereum to another Ethereum, another Ethereum is going to be very challenging. So I don't think it's, it's not going to come really smooth, this merge. But, you know, it might be a great success and that will be fantastic. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to be able to do that. So for brands, should explore different, different ways. Well, I know from reading your website that you are passionate about the authenticity of high quality brands and the, yeah. you know, the products that they make. How can cryptocurrency or NFTs or blockchain help fight the counterfeiting of high fashion brands? Well, it's all about proving the authenticity of a product. So if you think about certain NFTs or the next generation of NFTs, they look pretty like that they can actually do that. So verify credential of the product. So this is when you get into the area of uh, product ID. And I think that is what can add big value to brands because if you see you have got a physical product that is tied up to a digital twin, that is uh, which credential are on the blockchain. So that way you can actually verify the authenticity and you don't need to have all these experts they verify the product. So if you think about it, I mentioned about second-hand market and the resale market. So in the US, you have got companies like Real Real and in the UK or in Europe, you have companies like Vestiaire Collective. And I do shop with the Vestiaire Collective, to be honest. But the way they do it, they have got High-skilled people, they manually verify Chanel handbag, Louis Vuitton handbag. And because they, you know, they've been trained, they've got an amazing experience, they can do that. But you have to think about, there is always the risk of human error because, you know, everybody can make mistakes. And also the resources spent to train these people, to employ these people, to have a hub for verification is massive and what blockchain can just do that for a fraction of the cost. So that's what I'm really excited about. And, you know, we just got started. I think blockchain is going to add a massive value to luxury brand, which is not just fashion. You know, it's about luxury watches. It's about anything luxury, like art as well, because counterfeiting is a big thing in art as well. And the pharma, 
So, you know, pharmaceuticals products and stuff like that. So there are different industries that can be disrupted by blockchain. But, you know, we are saying that in a very abstract way by blockchain, what we really need is a solution, tangible solution that can be implemented and can solve that problem. Well, I know your time is limited, so I have just one more question for you, and that, that'll be the sure. end of our conversation. I'm 54. And so I was in my 20s for most of the 1990s, and I was very excited then about the emerging technology of virtual reality. But now, 30 years later, I, I have zero interest whatsoever in putting on a VR headset. Yeah. The few times I've done it, it's made me nauseous. I'm just not interested in that. That seems to be the vision right now for you know, interacting via the metaverse in a really immersive way. Uh, I wonder what your your feelings about the current experience of being in the metaverse is and, you know, how you relate to it, how much time you spend there and what you're looking forward to in terms of future developments, particularly around the interface. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I have to say the experience in the current metaverses is no good. <laughs> it's really no good. And, you know, you hang out there, you have to type to send messages to people, and sometimes nobody is there, it's difficult to walk. I think it's very primitive. And uh, personally, I don't spend much time there. I think exactly what you said, you know, these uh, augmented reality, virtual reality technology, they, they started before blockchain and crypto. And they never kind of like took off because of the challenges of the handset, because, you know, different kind of things. They never been really disrupting even the fashion industry. The fashion industry was disrupted by crypto and by blockchain and by NFT, not by virtual reality. That's the way that I think. Yeah, they were trying to do, but uh, the real disruption came with NFTs. So what I'm excited about, I want to see this user experience uh, just getting better. And the same issue you find also in DeFi and, you know, in trading uh, in that space, the user experience is bad and you have to go through all these different wallets uh, and then you have to transfer the money from one to another. It's just so clumsy. Then uh, not many people are able to do that. So. The thing is, if we want to bring a crypto to the next level and every mass adopted by my granny, by my mom, by people, they don't understand crypto, like just using Apple computer where you switch a button and everything comes up without you knowing all the technicalities within the computer. I think we need more companies to focus on UX and UI. So user experience is very important you know, interface, a friendly and easy to use interface that is also engaging with the users. It should be the focus of the work of any company that is building really in, in Web3. And yeah, I kind of agree with you. We are still um, at the beginning, but you know, I think Rome wasn't built in, uh, <laughs> in a few years, you know, and uh, so I think we are making amazing progress in the space. But yeah, I personally don't, uh, don't spend much time in the metaverse and, you know, I check it in and out, but I think we need, uh, we need to have some kind of, uh, yeah, level up in order to get more people uh, into that obviously gaming is a big thing so like my my niece just spend all the time 
with the phone on in games so uh, but games they have got a better user experience what they need to do is uh, utility so ability to bring the assets that you have in your game outside the game and have a new utility outside the game so i think that's a big challenge that gaming is facing is actually bringing their assets with the utility outside game and I think if companies can do that, so they can include gaming experience within their product offering, I think that could be probably the way for the metaverse, for Web3 to become more user-friendly and engaging with the next generation, because the next generation wants that. You know, they live more and more online just because the way that also people interact is completely different than the way we used to interact. Even myself, you know, I'm, I'm 36 and, you know, I feel, I always get surprised by the new generation if I'm talking to my niece and my nephew. <laughs> well, I have two sons. Uh, my oldest son is 22. My youngest is about to turn 18 and I can't really get any information out of them about anything, it seems. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Um, particularly my oldest son. He's he doesn't really leave the house much. He's online all the time, and his the things he's interested in are um, either he doesn't think I would understand them, or he doesn't want me to know about them. But our conversations are quite superficial. It's a little frustrating. Yeah, but I can kind of understand that. But I think you know we do need to get our generation also to engage with this new technology because uh, you know you don't want to be kind of like left behind and that's what i would say to everybody even if you think like oh nft what's that that's you know that's hype that's nothing it's just gonna disappear it's not gonna disappear nft are the building blocks of web3 and they are gonna change they are gonna evolve i mean i'm not saying the technology that is right now is gonna be what it will be even in 10 years but we all live one life and I want to be part of this evolution. I want to be doing something. I don't want to be stuck in the old world and the world is changing and I'm not going to be able to feel that I was part of it. So, you know, I think uh, it's just amazing to see how be part of the change. And I think more people should probably just try. Yes, there might, might be a risk. There might be stuff that you don't understand. But I always felt... Uh, this amazing feeling when you put yourself on the spot and you challenge yourself with new things. We never stop learning, even, you know, if you are super knowledgeable and there is always something new coming up that put you on the spotlight and say, can you do that? And maybe, oh gosh, I can't. And then you have to ask advice from your children or, you know, your, uh, your nephew. <laughs> and, and, it's just, and it's just great, I think, you know, that's the beauty of being human is that you never stop knowledge never stop flowing amen to that well steffi thank you for your time i've enjoyed our conversation thank you so much have a good day you too bye bye bye, -bye. that was stefania barbaglio otherwise known as steffi b and uh, quite a bit of that conversation was actually devoted to her connection to charles hoskinson and Charles Hoskinson, if you're not familiar with him, he is the primary architect of the Cardano blockchain, which is home to the ADA coin. Now, Charles is a very 
controversial figure, and I find him quite inspiring. He's clearly amazingly intelligent, uh, very accomplished, you know, became a billionaire in his 20s by inventing something pretty amazing. And I really like listening to his YouTube output, which is typically just him sitting in front of his webcam, uh, sometimes answering questions from viewers and sometimes just riffing, but it's always good stuff. He also did a many hours long podcast conversation with Lex Friedman. Again, if you've never heard of Charles Hoskinson and, uh, well, you know what? If you've never even heard his voice, let's listen to Charles Hoskinson addressing a House of Representatives committee on the topic of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. He was an invited speaker, and here are his opening remarks. Uh, thank you, sir. Mr. Hoskinson, you may proceed. Hi, everybody. Chairman Maloney, Ranking Member Fishbach, members of the subcommittee, and congressional staffers who worked so hard. Thank you for inviting me to testify at this hearing. I applaud the work of this subcommittee, and I appreciate you all taking the time to provide a forum for the blockchain industry. The blockchain industry has grown over the past decade from a small group of uncommercialized volunteer developers, and it was very small, believe me, to a trillion-dollar global economy encapsulating sophisticated engineering, scientific research, publicly traded companies, and millions of users. While our remarkable growth yields significant opportunities ranging from infrastructure security to entirely new economies like metaverses and NFTs, it also has presented new challenges and amplified the existing problems. Our legacy systems cannot handle the rapid movement of value without counterparty risk and require centralized middlemen. Our regulatory tools, risk management systems, and oversight processes were never designed for such speed, scale, and rapid evolution. For example, in just four years, our industry has touched concepts ranging from IPOs to intellectual property to completely new business structures called DAOs that are effectively leaderless and jurisdiction-free. Reflecting upon the 20th century, the dominance of the United States has rested upon three pillars our financial services, our technology companies, and our manufacturing capabilities. These industries are rapidly transforming under the demands of globalization, increased competition, new technologies, and our desire to define ESG rules to ensure a sustainable values-driven global economy. At our core, our industry's technology is about creating distributed ledgers to store information that needs to be transparent, auditable, time-stamped, and immutable. This process enables records of social and economic concerns to be reliable and programmable. For example, as a rancher, I have to deal with water rights, grazing leases, BLM land, and numerous other agreements, contracts, and economic events. Many of these are not digitized, nor are they shared in ways to provide emergent value to policymakers, regulators, and researchers. The consequences of this fragmentation and lack of digitization are a large amount of inefficiency, replication of work, and a lack of access for entrepreneurs and innovators who could build new products and services that would dramatically reduce costs and improve efficiency for all stakeholders. The power of blockchain technology is its universality and permissionless model for innovation. Our company input-output has never had to pay a royalty, file a patent application, or acquire a license to pursue business in countries as diverse as Ethiopia to Mongolia. Thus, we have to understand that categories-based regulation that is segregated to the borders of a particular jurisdiction and relies upon centralized actors for reporting and disclosure is unlikely to be effective and frankly will inhibit regulation. Furthermore, the Internet's governance, evolution, and innovation are controlled by the ITU or some other transnational body, 
but rather by thousands of interconnected and interdependent agencies and private companies working towards the self-emerging common goals of increased connectivity, capacity, and utility. If we are to discuss how to regulate our industry, protect consumers, and align growth with the realities of modern society, then we ought to have the humility to admit innovation makes specifics difficult. We should focus on principles instead. Blockchains enable the liquidity of value, thought, and commerce at a scale and speed society has never enjoyed before. Instead of predicting the outcome of these new capabilities, we ought to decide on what risks we must guard against, what fundamental rights consumers should have, and how to use new tools for the greatest possible good. It seems prudent to focus on concepts like measuring decentralization, information asymmetries, accessibility of data, and access rather than arguing about jurisdictional bodies or asset categorization. Cryptocurrencies are financial stem cells at their core. They can be nearly any asset and can change over time. Principles don't change. For example, the notion of measuring consolidation and its risks has been an endeavor the United States has pursued and is frankly good at since the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. While none of us are personally familiar with life in the 1890s, we'd certainly be comfortable with the intent and concepts behind the Sherman Antitrust Act. Centralization of markets and power seldom leads to good outcomes. I hope we can engage in a fruitful and ongoing dialogue throughout the coming months as the United States debates the regulatory future of the American blockchain and cryptocurrency industry. Like the prior Congresses in the 1990s discussing the regulatory framework for the Internet that led to the rise of trillion-dollar companies, I believe this Congress can achieve great results by working with our industry in a principles-based legislative approach and leveraging our capabilities to innovate and adapt. Thank you all for your time, and I look forward to your questions. All right, that was Charles Hoskinson, and I think uh, at least what I hear in his his voice, you know, in his vocal intonation, is a, a combination of almost unshakable self confidence, but also a playfulness. And playfulness is something that I associate with intellect and high intelligence. But you know, for people who are looking to get rich quick with crypto, Charles is not a beloved figure. He has famously said that he does not care about the price of ADA. He didn't build the Cardano blockchain as a way for investors to make money quickly with speculation. He built it to be used in real-world applications. And some of those applications that Steffi B was referencing were different forms of digital ID. For example, Cardano is being used to track students as they move through the educational system in Ethiopia and verifying their academic achievement via the blockchain. Charles has also got uh, some programs that are starting up in Mongolia, and he just recently, like with, I think, this past Saturday, he did an AMA, which you can find on YouTube, from Mongolia, talking about using the Cardano blockchain to track cattle and other farm animals in Mongolia. And Mongolia is, is almost unique. Uh, it's, it's sort of like Australia in that farm animals not only outnumber human residents, but by an enormous margin. I don't remember the exact figures, but um, if pressed, the numbers that come out of my memory are uh, 80 million cows, sheep, and yaks, and, and similar animals to about 3 million human residents in Mongolia. So decentralized identification is a topic for another day, because it is something that I would not want to dash off quickly and without significant study. And preferably, you know, I would like to have somebody who is quite knowledgeable on the topic 
on the line to talk to and ask questions about. But that is definitely something that Cardano is being used for. But again, it is not designed to increase in price. There are blockchains and cryptocurrencies which have built-in burn mechanisms basically to constrict the supply and increase the price of each individual token or coin. And that is just not the track that uh, Cardano and IOHK or, or Input Output Global is going for. They are going for real-world applications, particularly in the less developed countries of the world, where banking and financial services are not available to the vast majority of the populations there. So in the conversation, a familiar topic that uh, Steffi and I touched on is the difference between proof-of-work and proof-of-stake cryptocurrencies. Proof-of-work cryptocurrencies using a lot more electricity and computational hardware than proof-of-stake cryptocurrencies, which is one of the reasons she gives for preferring Cardano over Ethereum as the blockchain of choice for making NFTs for the fashion industry. And there at the very end, uh, she and I are so on the same page. I was really excited about the concept of virtual reality when I was in my 20s. Now that I'm in my 50s, the last thing I want to do is put on a VR headset. I mean, I'd rather do that than walk over hot coals, but it's certainly not something that appeals to me like it did when I was younger. In fact, there's a very famous photograph. I'm looking at it right now. It's a picture of a room, like a big auditorium full of people who are all wearing VR headsets, all looking in the same direction, all basically just blind to their surroundings, oblivious to what's going on around them. And then Mark Zuckerberg, not wearing a headset, walking down the aisle uh, in a gray t-shirt and jeans. And he's got a smile on his face that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is a very smart, and accomplished person, but not exactly charismatic. Kind of robotic, kind of wooden, with a bit of a creepy smile. And to me, that is the most off-putting image. It, it basically, all the people who are wearing the VR headsets are oblivious to what's going on around them. They don't know that they are being observed by Zuckerberg. They are lost in these, these illusions that not only, you know, dominate their visual field, but dominate their visual field because they're wearing something that prevents them from seeing what's actually around them. I think digital technology already cuts us off from the real world enough as it is. We don't need any more of that. At least I don't. And I've been listening a lot to Balaji Srinivasan, uh, who is the author of a new book called The Network State. And he's been on you know, a lot of the really big podcasts. Like he talked to Sam Harris recently. Uh, he's been on the Tim Ferriss show. Uh, you know, he's, he's doing these really big podcasts and he can talk at length for hours and never repeat himself, which, you know, speaks to the, uh, the, the depth of his knowledge and you know, the power of his memory to, to bring all this stuff out on command. But one thing that I have heard him say repeatedly in different places is that the smartphone is what he calls a convergence device. There are a lot of different services and functions that all came together in this one device. And the idea of a convergence device is older than the iPhone. In fact, it was something that Bill Gates was really fixated on in the 90s, but Bill Gates was thinking something more along the lines of a television. Because everybody had a television, most everybody watched television, and television was a familiar device, it was a familiar feature in people's lives, and portable phones were not. But it was the iPhone that became, you know, that, that new convergence device. A challenger to that was Google Glass, but Google Glass was... I would say not ready for prime time. It just, it looked dumb. 
the fact that Google didn't make it available to everybody that you had to be invited to try it out. You had to be invited to pay them, you know, for the privilege of beta testing, basically their, their device, which marked you out as somebody who, you know, wanted to wear this badge of honor out in public. Basically, it marked you as not only a geek, but sort of a, an egomaniacal geek or a nerd who just thought very highly of him or herself. I, I say him or herself for completeness sake, but I only ever saw men wearing Google Glass. But Balaji Srinivasan talks about smart spectacles, basically glasses that just look like glasses, but you know they have the ability to bring information from the online world into your visual field and integrate it with the real things that you're seeing. Uh, I think it was one of the Google co-founders who said that a man holding a phone and looking down at the phone in the palm of his hand is an emasculating posture. And I'm not sure if it's emasculating, but it certainly is disconnecting from the world. And I think that's the last thing we need to do more of is disappear into our digital navels. I, I think we really need to engage with each other and engage with the physical world more. And if a device like augmented reality glasses allows us to do that, then that's the sort of technology that I'm looking forward to. But straight up VR headset, no thank you. <laughs> no thank you. Not interested. Now, I hear from a lot of listeners to my other podcasting efforts, you know, my previous podcasts, who are interested in a lot of the things that I'm interested in, but they are definitely not interested or approving of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies generally. But I don't want this podcast to be about crypto, and I certainly don't want it to be highly biased and partisan. The last thing I want to do is to draw a line in the sand and say, if you're over on the other side of that line on the topic of crypto, this podcast is not for you. In fact, you know, when I'm talking to the producers and we're making plans about future guests, we make an effort to, you know, if we've had a few crypto heavy shows in a row to get somebody in, you know, whose presentation has nothing to do with cryptocurrency at all. Because Again, what we're interested in is where the world is going and how these various forces that shape our world are converging and interacting with each other in sometimes surprising ways, sometimes in frightening ways. But not everything comes together on the blockchain. So this is all a long-winded call to action. If you're listening to this, in spite of the fact that you are not a crypto person and you've made it all the way here to the end of this episode, well, thank you. Thank you for that. What would you like to hear me talk about? Who would you like to hear me talk to? And what point of view or what angle on the state of the world, the state of human civilization, and the state of the human project would you like me to focus my attention on for a future episode of this podcast? Let me know either via email. My email address is kmo at padverb.com or via our Telegram group. You can find a link to it on the Padverb podcast page on en.padverb.com. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Padverb Podcast. As always, I want to thank the Padverb team. The Padverb Podcast team includes me, <laughs> the voice, executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov, who also created the theme music, Elena Voigt, and starting this episode, our Padawan producer, Sophia Sa, who did most of the editing on this episode. So thanks to everybody at Padverb, and thanks to you for listening. I will be back in one week's time. Talk to you then.